Um, we both were presenting last year in the Darwin year, and I think he was in, he was in Montreal, and I was at the University of Toronto. And um, it, th this presentation, well, the Darwin year was the 200th year of Darwin's, since Darwin's birthday, February 12th. And on the 24th, the 24th of November was the 150th anniversary of, of the origin of species. And when I was asked to speak in a, in a symposium on theistic evolution, I, I just, and it was at the University of Toronto, I thought I'd throw this in as a lark, fully expecting it to be rejected, because obviously you can feel the polemic dripping from the title. And they accepted it. So I thought, all right, I'll go with it. Um, so Darwinian theological insights, and as Ted has pointed out, you know where the intellectually fulfilled atheism comes from, toward an intellectually fulfilled theism. Uh, the thing to note about the presentation, uh, there were three of us. It was on theistic evolution, and they had the insight of having at least one theist in that section. All right, um, when it comes to the handout, all this, the stuff you see in the handout um, is, is on the website at uh, Cambridge University. The complete work of Charles Darwin and the correspondence, it, these are the most magnificent sites. So all you have to do if you want to check these passages uh, is just type them into your computers. Well, on the, uh, the website, the Darwin Correspondence Project, and in a section entitled Belief in Darwin and Religion, and, and Ted is absolutely right. It is thanks to the historians of science that have really cleaned up a lot of this warfare mentality in terms of presenting the true historical uh, picture. And I have quite benefited by this as, as a theologian. Anyway, this is what they say. Darwin is celebrated as a secular saint and vilified as Satan's agent in the corruption of the human spirit, but he is misquoted in order to support a particular position. Or for us within the, uh, the Christian world, proof text or cherry-picked in terms of Bible verses, so too the very same occurs within the Darwin literature. And I'm going to give you an, uh, an amazing example of this. The popular view of Darwin, and remember, this is Cambridge University. It's not like it's you know a, a, a Christian website. This is this is one of the this is a terrific historical website. The popular view of Darwin as purely secularist or even atheist is based on a highly selective reading of the sources. Well, let's have a look at Darwin late in life with regards to his religious belief. And I think one of the best letters, and I had the privilege of seeing it in 07 in Cambridge, is the letter by John Fordyce to Darwin. And he wrote the letter to Darwin. He says, what are your religious beliefs? And Darwin, a little bit irritated, writes the following with regards to his religious beliefs. My judgment often fluctuates. In my most extreme fluctuations, I have never been an atheist. And I love this. He qualifies the term atheist in the sense of denying the existence of God. Now, this is May 7th, 79. Remember, he dies in 82. So in other words, this is very, very late in life. Continuing, I think that as I grow older, and we're going to revisit this little clause, but not always, that an agnostic would be the more correct description of my state of mind. In this very same letter, one of the most magnificent little passages, he says the following. It seems absurd to doubt that a man or a woman may be an ardent theist and an evolutionist. And when my book came out, Evolutionary Creation, A Christian Approach to Evolution, I had a lot of critics like Jerry Coyne uh, completely upset with me. But I return to Jerry and simply say, 
I'm just an ardent theist, and Darwin will affirm such a position. Of course, I didn't get a response from Jerry. Richard Dawkins famously in The Blind Watchmaker, as we've seen with Ted, said the following, that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. And this is where I'm going to have a little fun with an antithesis. Could it be, looking at the Darwin literature, that Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled theist like myself, and also an evolutionary biologist? Now, let's get a few things clear. Number one, I'm going to use a Dawkinsian methodology. In other words, I'm going to go to the Darwin literature. The key word, the operative word is insights. I'm not turning Darwin into a Christian. He, he, not going to do that at all. But he's, Darwin thought seriously about the theological implications of his theory of evolution. And as I read this as, as an evangelical Christian, I resonate very deeply with many of his insights and also his struggles. And as I said, there is no Christianization of Charles Darwin. In particular, Darwin and Christianity as he came from the autobiography, looks back at a period after the Beagle voyage and says the following in the late 1830s, I came to disbelieve Christianity as divine revelation. And later in life, making it very explicit in a letter to McDermott, I do not believe the Bible as divine revelation and therefore in Jesus Christ as the Son of God. However, and here is Darwin looking back, to this two-year period after the Beagle voyage, and at the time when he formulated the theory of evolution, he says, during these two years, I was led much, I, I, I was led to think much about religion. So we as evangelicals, we wrestle with the issue of evolution. It's because there are some very large theological implications and, and things we have to deal with, and the man himself underlines this, and you see this in his notebooks. So I'm going to give you a series of insights. Let's talk about some insights from Charles Darwin with regards to divine creative action. And of course, he writes these out in his notebooks on transmutation, which is the term, if you wish, for evolution of species. And there from notebook B is that first famed evolutionary tree. Now through the notebooks, you're going to see what he's going to do. He's going to reject divine intervention in terms of dramatic events, this notion of the god of the gaps but he's not going to reject God. He's going to accept a deistic God who created life, including humans, through natural laws. Let's look at a couple passages. This is from Notebook B. And you're going to see this analogy between astronomy and evolutionary biology. Darwin writes, Astronomers might formally have said that God ordered each planet to move in its particular destiny. In the same manner, God orders each animal with certain form in certain countries. So in other words, there was a time, and think of retrograde planetary motion. Uh, Martin Luther, for example, thought this was just too complex uh, a movement that God, act, not angels, but God actually had to come in. And so there's a time when it comes to the origin of creatures, that creatures are being placed interventionistically in different places. And then Darwin says, but how much more simple and sublime, excellent, to let attraction act according to certain laws. Such are the inevitable consequences. Let animals be created then by fixed laws of generation. And in this next passage, it's going to be very clear that it's God's fixed laws of generation. He writes a philosopher. Remember, this is a natural philosopher. Uh, the term uh, scientist is, is, is yet to be coined. And he says, so a philosopher, a natural philosopher is mistaken 
If he says the, and here it is, the innate knowledge of the creator, what's the assumption in the passage? He believes in the creator. He believes that humans have an innate knowledge of the creator. Anyway, the philosopher is mistaken if he says that the innate knowledge of the creator has been implanted by a separate act of God. Do you see what he's rejecting here? He's got this thing against the God of the gaps in interventionist events throughout evolutionary time and not as a necessary integrant part of whose? God's, the creator's what? Most magnificent laws. These laws which we profane, or as my students like to say, which we diss in thinking are not capable to produce every effect of every kind which surrounds us, including our innate knowledge of the Creator. Well, let's move on to the origin of species, still talking about divine action. He writes here, authors of the highest eminence, in other words, the leading scientists of the day, which, if we had to give them a category, the progressive creationists, they basically had come to terms with the age of the earth at this time, but they were, they were still positing divine events for the creation of different organisms. Authors of the highest eminence seem to be fully satisfied with the view that each species has been independently created. And here's the but. But to my mind, it accords better with what we know of the laws impressed on matter by who? Remember, this is the origin of species, by the creator, that the production and extinction of past and present species should be due to secondary causes. In other words, natural processes, natural laws, like those determining the birth and death. And I find, and this is when I, I'm, like most evangelicals, I wrestled in coming to terms with evolution. And the analogy of when we think about being created in our mother's womb, we don't think of God coming out of heaven and adding an arm or a leg, but rather we see God creating us through natural processes. So, so too, here it is. In the famed book, The Origin of Species, Darwin's making an analogy between God creating us in the womb and the creation of life through an evolutionary process. His, mess, his next most famous book is The Descent of Man, where he extends evolutionary theory to humanity in 1871. And we're going to see this very same analogy with embryology and evolution. And again, these are, these are major passages in his most important books. These aren't sideshow side passages. Darwin writes, I am aware that the conclusions arrived at in this book, which is humans have evolved, will be denounced by some as highly irreligious. But he who, denounce, who denounces them is bound to shew why it is more irreligious to explain the origin of a man as a distinct species by descent from some lower form through the laws of variation and natural selection than to explain the birth of the individual, there's your analogy to embryology, through the laws of ordinary reproduction. The birth of both the species and of the individual are equal parts of that grand sequence of events which our minds refuse to accept as the result of blind chance, pointing directly away from our friend Richard Dawkins. And we're going to revisit this. And there's an interesting epistemological implication here. So that's divine action, Darwin seeing God behind the evolutionary process. How about some insights into this term that certainly raises a lot of eyebrows in our culture today, intelligent design. Now, when we talk about intelligent design, we have to talk about William Paley. Darwin was steeped in Paleyan categories in Cambridge at Christ College, 
and it's by it, it, and it's through this categorization we're going to see he carries it for a long time. So it's Paley's natural theology, and Darwin in the autobiography writes that when it comes to Paley, it was the only part of the program useful for the education of mine. And at the same time, he says the following later in life. I did not at that time, talking about when he was at Christ College, trouble myself about Paley's premises. And we'll look at these in just a second. And taking these on trust, I was charmed and convinced by the long line of argumentation. I was not able, and here it is, he's later in life, and those are the dates. This is the autobiography in Descent to Man. I was not able to annul the, the, the belief that, and as I've gone through the Darwin literature, I've become pretty sensitive to this term, each and every, because these are basically Paleon echoes of the Paleon category set he picks up as an undergrad. I was not able to annul the belief that each species had been purposely created. And this led to my, and for those who love uh, Michael Polanyi, the tacit dimension, my tacit assumption that every detail of structure was of some special service. Well, let's look at Paley's premises. Number one, intelligent design, that nature reflects a creative mind. Paley's second category is that of perfect adaption, that every part of nature fits together perfectly and tightly. And then the third category, and therefore as a consequence, nature is static, and then beneficence, that nature is happy and good. Now, here's where the problem starts for Darwin. Paley's premises are conflated, meaning they're collapsed together. You accept one, you accept them all. If you, ex if you reject one, then you're gonna be rejecting the others. By definition, given this category set, and by the way, when I present this to my students, I come out and say, now listen, I'm at a, we're at a great university. It's a wonderful education, but what premises are you simply picking up tacitly and operating in your understanding of nature and ultimately your worldview? So with this category set, by definition, living organisms are designed, static, and happy. And what are we going to find with Charles Darwin? Darwin's theory is dynamic. It is ambitious. Therefore, we're going to have problems and with him, and in the end, rejecting the static and happy aspect of nature. But here's the question. What about design? What's he going to do with design? And this, I contend, is quite a challenge for him because it leads to the problem. He is trapped in paleon conflations. However, as a biologist, so for Darwin, design for Darwin tacitly includes with design perfection in the details and goodness. But however, Darwin will be pounded by nature, the experience of nature. And for myself as a theologian, that's natural revelation. That's Psalm 19 and the heavens declaring the glory of God. And we're going to see that impact throughout his life. What will be the result of being trapped between the Paleon categories and being pounded by nature we're going to have struggle. And you're going to see with regards to him wrestling with design, he talks about being in a complete jumble, utterly hopeless muddle, and perplexed beyond measure. Let's talk about a few of these examples. Wonderful correspondence between Asa Gray and Charles Darwin. And so Darwin, right after The Origin of Species, is writing with Gray and says the following to Gray, I grieve to say that I cannot honestly go as far as you do about design. I am conscious that I am in an utterly hopeless muddle. I cannot think of that the world, as I see it, is the result of chance. In other words, a dysteleologically rational world. And yet, here he is, here's the struggle, he's bouncing back and forth, he's being pounded by nature, 
And yet, I cannot look at, look at the word here, you're going to see this jump over again, each separate thing is the result of design. Can you hear and see Paley coming out in Darwin's thinking here? Again, I say I am and shall ever remain in a hopeless model. Well, on to Herschel. Darwin writes, the point which you raise on, and he uses the actual word, the full word, intelligent design has perplexed me beyond measure. I am in a complete jumble on the point. Here's the, here's the experience. One cannot look at this universe without all the living productions and man without, without believing that all has been intelligently designed. Look at the word each in there, and here's the shift. Yet, when I look at each individual organism, I can see no evidence of this. So we're having echoes of Paley in the background, tacitly, of his mind. And then, so this, this starts right after the origin of species, and there's, there are many more other passages like this, but let's zoom ahead to 1870 to his confident J.D. Hooker, just to see that this basic battle with Darwin remains throughout this 10-year period. Look at the first couple words, my theology. Darwin is thinking theologically all the time, is a simple model. I cannot look at the universe as the result of blind chance, yet I can see no evidence of, look what's going on here. Do you see the word beneficence and design? Do you see the conflation? Beneficent design of any kind, and there you go, in the details, each little detail. What are we hearing again? Paley. As for, and he's responding here to uh, Asa Gray's argument, as for each, there it is, variation that has ever occurred, having been preordained for a special end, I can no more believe in it than the spot each raindrop has uh, been ordained. Let's move on to the autobiography, and I'd certainly encourage you, 1876, it's, oh, it's very short, it's only about 10 pages, where you get his mature theological views in a section entitled, religious belief. Now, he's going to point out very clearly that now, now he understands that he's been un laboring under the Paleian category set and he'll openly reject uh, Paley's intelligent design argument and says that it fails. Uh, and in the autobiography, you're going to see when he's dealing with God, he's going to give you some pro-arguments for God and then some contra-arguments for God's existence. And with each of these, he's going to follow with a rebuttal because where he's going to end up He's going to end up as an agnostic at the end of this. So the argument for God and then takes it away with a rebuttal. The argument against God then takes it away with a rebuttal. And with regards to the word agnostic, it says something about categories. The term agnostic was coined by uh, Thomas Henry Huxley in uh, 1869. And as I look at the way Darwin all through the 60s is wrestling with not knowing what to make of it, it seems, it's my hypothesis, is once he grasps the term agnostic, it gives him a category to settle down these vicious swings back and forth that we saw in these earlier passages. Well, let's look at one of these ID passages from the autobiography. Writes Darwin, another source of conviction in the existence of God connected with the reason and not with the feelings. I actually just finished giving you a, there was a, an intelligent design argument, what he called a feeling sort of argument. And now he's talking about the reason argument, which impresses me as having much more weight. This follows from the extreme difficulty. Then he shifts gears, or rather impossibility, of conceiving this immense and wondrous universe you got a little bit of echoing of Psalm 19 here, including men and women and their capacity of looking backwards and far into futurity as the result of blind chance or necessity. Remember, this is late in life. This is 76. He dies in 82. Continuing, when thus reflecting, and for those historians that, that have done this literature, they jump all over this passage, in particular the tense of the verb. 
When thus reflecting in this way, looking at nature, I feel, present tense, 76, I feel compelled to look to a first cause, having an intelligent mind, in some degree analogous to that of man, and, there's your present tense again, I deserve to be called a theist. Now, the wonderful thing about the Darwin literature all online today, the question I raised to myself was, does he mean theist or does he mean deist? He definitely knows the word deist. He's, 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 there, there are a couple passages and he understands the term. And of course, the word theist makes me wonder. He's got another passage saying, I didn't think seriously about theism until later in life. It's not Christian theism, but it, it strikes me as a personal theism, theism as a possibility. Well, what does he do with this passage? Immediately, the next sentence, he says the following. This conclusion was strong on my mind, that is, that of being a theist, about the time, as far as I can remember, uh, when I wrote The Origin of Species. And since that time, it has very gradually and with many fluctuations become weaker. Now, little parenthetic note. So here I was at the University of Toronto. I spoke on the 23rd. The 150th anniversary of the book was the next day on the 24th, and I thought just to be a little bit of an irritating little man, I sto stood away from the podium and I says, well, ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow night we're going to have this large gala dinner for Charles Darwin. We're going to toast the man, and we're going to toast the book. We're going to be toasting an intelligent design theorist. There weren't many happy people. Remember what he does in the autobiography. Gives an argument, then takes it away, and here's the rebuttal. But then arises the horrid doubt with regards to nature pointing to there being some sort of mind behind it. The horrid doubt. Can the mind of a man, which has, as I fully believe, been developed from a mind as low as that possessed by the lowest animal, be trusted when it draws such grand conclusions? I think you see the problem, don't you? What did he just do right here? He used his mind to draw that grand conclusion. Do you see the circularity? Commonly known as self-referential incoherence. And from my perspective, I don't think he's responded to his, I don't think he's rebutted his argument properly. And finally, in the last year of his life, there's a duke between Darwin and the Duke of Argyle. And the Duke of Argyle just goes up to him and says, look, if you've written these magnificent uh, books over your careers like earthworms and orchids, I mean, what do you make of this? And the Duke recalls, with reference to observations he, that is Darwin, made of the wonderful contrivances for certain purposes in nature, I said to Mr. Darwin that it was impossible to look at these without seeing that they were the effect and expression of mind. And Darwin, that is, he looked at me very hard and said, well, that comes over me, the idea that mind is behind this, with overwhelming force. But at other times, and he shook his head vaguely, it seems to go away. And as a theologian looking at design, I think design pounds out to us, but I don't think it twists our arms. We have a decision to make with regard to what are we going to do with this revelation, this nonverbal revelation in nature. Okay, let's get into issues a little more challenging, issues of insights on theodicy. And of course, when we talk about theodicy and Charles Darwin, we always have to talk about Annie Darwin, his beloved daughter who died 
1851. And Darwin, Darwin doesn't write very much about it, but he says in his autobiography, we suffered one very severe grief. Now, when James Mork in 87 came out with the thesis, I mean, I read the paper and I thought, you know, there's something there, but it's, I, my view on this, and you see it in the, crea the movie Creation, I mean, this becomes the central issue of, of the movie, that Darwin basically rejected faith ultimately because of, of Annie. I don't really see that connection. I think this is a very important element of his story, but I'm not sure we can push it that far. Still, just a little later, and everyone knows this famous passage, a letter to J.D. Hooker, his confidant, Darwin writes, what a book a devil's chaplain might write on the clumsy, wasteful, blunderingly low and horrid, cr horridly cruel works of nature. And of course, there's an aspect, you know, where is this loving God as Darwin's starting to see some of these ruder elements in nature. And of course, we all know the final sentence in The Origin of Species, but just before that, this is it. Thus, from the war of nature and from famine and death, and as I'm looking at these passages, and I'm going to pause it here, and I don't think he's doing this cognizantly, is every time Darwin wrestles with the Odyssey and the problem of pain, you're going to see he's going to come up with not a rebuttal, but there's going to be reference to the wonderful aspect of nature. So from the famine and death, the most exalted object which we are capable of con conceiving, namely the production of higher animals directly follows. And then we're going to follow on to this last sentence that everyone knows. There is a grandeur in this view of life. Do you see what's going on here in terms of my, the juxtaposition? We've got the war of nature, but at the same time, he's also acknowledging there's something wonderful. And my central thesis will be simply this. I think we have elements of deus absconditus, the God who hides, and deus relevatus being held in attention here. So there is a grandeur in this view of life with its several powers having been originally breathed. This is the original 1851, or 1859 first edition. And then from the second edition to the sixth edition, Darwin actually adds by the creator into a few forms into a one that whilst this planet has gone on cycling according to the fixed law of gravity from so simple a beginning, endless forms, most beautiful, there's your revelatory side, your Psalm 19 side, and most wonderful have been and are being evolved. Well, got to talk about Asa Gray again in light of this challenging issue of theodicy. And one of the best letters, if there's one letter you read, please read the May 22nd, 1860 letter. It's, it's absolutely fabulous. And he prefaces it very clearly with regards to the origin of species. I had no intention to write atheistically. My views are not at all, and love this word, necessarily atheistical. However, watch the battle that's going to emerge here. Remember, this is early. He has not come to terms to identifying. He's, he's got these paleon categories. I cannot see evidence of design and beneficence. Do you see the two premises tightly put together? On all sides of us, there seems to be too much misery in the world. And of course, we always know the, this passage. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding with their, within the bodies of caterpillars. These are wasps that lay its legs in a caterpillar and eats basically the guts of the caterpillar out until it dies. Not believing this, I see no necessity in the belief that the eye was expressly designed. Now, little parenthetic note. This passage right here, these very words right here, show up in Richard Dawkins, and of course, there's the title. 
Do you want to present the historical literature balanced, or are you going to focus in one direction? And of course, Richard Dawkins has an agenda. Well, for that matter, I have an agenda. Richard Dawkins is going to talk about, and there's the title, A Devil's Chaplain. And Dawkins goes ahead and takes this passage, first chapter, entitled The Devil's Chaplain, in the book The Devil's Chaplain, and you can see it there. That's all that Dawkins does and pulls this passage out. Well, how about if we follow up with the very next sentence in the very same paragraph? And you're going to see the juxtaposition thesis I'm proposing. So he's going to have problem with pain in nature, and at the same time, look what he says here. On the other hand, I cannot anyhow be contented to view this. What is it? There it is. This wonderful universe, the heavens declare, and especially the nature of man, and to conclude that everything is the result of brute force. And in the next sentence, I'm inclined to look at everything as resulting from what? Designed laws with the details, whether good or bad, left to the working out of what we may call chance. But then he adds, not that this notion at all satisfies me. Why? He's still a paleon. He wants all the details to be correct. And a little later, so in other words, what we have here is a design argument following the challenge of theodicy he's seeing in nature. Then he continues, very same letter in the next paragraph, giving you another design argument. I can see no reason why a man or other animal may not have been or aboriginally produced by natural laws and that all these laws may have been, there it is, expressly designed. Dr. Dawkins, you've got to be balanced with your readers by an omniscient creator who foresaw every future event and consequence. So let's zoom back to the autobiography and the issue of the problem of pain in nature. Remember how the autobiography goes. He gives an argument and then he takes it away. So here's an argument. What advantage? This is against God, contra God. What advantage can there be in the suffering of millions of lower animals throughout almost endless time? We've heard that argument in many churches. It's a reasonable one. Darwin says this is a very old argument from the existence of suffering against the existence of an intelligent first cause. Seems to me a strong one. But remember what his method is in the autobiography. He's going to end up as an agnostic. He's going to give an argument. He's going to take it back. And in the end, he's going to be a stalemate. Now, when I saw this and read in the autobiography, it just shook me because here's the rebuttal. According to my judgment, Charles Darwin's judgment, happiness decidedly prevails. Most sentient beings experience an excess of happiness over misery, although many occasionally suffer much. Well, let's go on to the last part of the puzzle. And this is the most challenging one. As an evangelical community, we're wrestling with evolution. And I think, is it, and I think we're starting to come to terms with it. And if we're going to come to terms with it, I think we've got to go all the way, and you know where I'm going, onto evolutionary psychology. Here's the origin of species. Darwin writes the following. In this passage, it's the only reference to human evolution. Now, in 1838, Darwin had humanity right front and center on, in, in terms of, of human evolution. Doesn't talk about it because he says in a letter in 56 to uh, um, uh, J.D. Uh, Hooker that it's a little too early. It, it isn't until uh, Descent of Man that he comes forward. So here's that sort of cryptic, well, it's not so cryptic statement with regards to human evolution. He says the following. In the distant future, I can see open fields, far more important researches. Psychology, of course, the term evolutionary psychology is not there, but psychology will be based on a new foundation. This guy is thinking of the full package. He's working out all the implications. That of the necessary acquirement of each mental power and capacity by gradation. Light, 
will be thrown on the origin of man and his history. And that's all you get with regards to human evolution and the origin of species. Well, where are we going with this? Well, religion and evolutionary psychology. And of course, when we think of this, we think of the great E.O. Wilson and his famed little phrase, hardwired for God. But how about if we take Darwin and maybe suggest that instead of hardwired for God, that maybe God has hardwired us. So in other words, we've been hardwired by God. And to revisit that very famous passage from the M Notebook where Darwin says that the innate knowledge of the Creator, in other words, natural revelation, is a necessary integrant part of God's most magnificent laws, which we profane in thinking are not capable to produce every effect of every kind which surrounds us. So, we're going to put psychology on a new basis. Maybe we'll start rethinking natural theology on a new basis. The famous passage in Romans 2.14, the law written on our hearts that Paul writes about. Well, indeed, it's there. How did it get there? Do we need an intervention? No, maybe it can come through an evolutionary process. And, of course, Richard Dawkins has something to say to this with regards to mine. In The Blind Watchmaker, he says, it is as if the human brain were... Specific, I like this, specifically designed to misunderstand, and I think at this point in the presentation, the way this guy uses the word Darwinism, of course he means atheistic evolution, distaleological evolution. These are not the views of Charles Darwin, the term Darwinism. Nevertheless, we'll, use, we'll, we'll continue to cite this, that the, it is as if the, the human brain were specifically designed to misunderstand Darwinism, and find it hard to believe. And this is why I read the atheistic literature. He's teeing it up for me. I'm going to look at this and give an antithesis. It is as if the human brain were specifically designed by God to understand Darwinism or atheism and to find that hard to believe. Every sword has two edges. Don't let Dawkins control evolutionary biology and evolutionary psychology. And with that being said, let's revisit a few of these passages we've seen. With the hardwired by God thesis, I think it's there with Charles Darwin. He writes, here's your epistemological statement. I cannot think that the world as we see it is the result of chance. Why? Well, I think that's the way the Lord has made us and set up our neural cortex when we look at nature, at nature. Just to simply say there's got to be something behind it. That the heavens do indeed declare the glory of God. And for my biological colleagues, so too evolutionary biology. Let's revisit this from the descent of man. That the birth of species and the individual are equal parts of that grand plan, of that grand sequence of events. There it is, which our minds, there's your epistemological statement, our minds have been made this way to refuse to accept as the result of blind chance. Should be hearing some amens on this, please. This is Darwin, and again, we've seen this one in the autobiography, that the impossibility of conceiving, epistemological statement, this immense and wondrous universe as the result of blind chance or necessity. You're not going to see Dawkins dealing with many of these passages because I think they're a wee bit embarrassing for the polemical agenda of skewing the primary historical literature that Dick does. All right. You guys are probably happy up to here. This may not get happy from here on in. What about human evil and evolutionary psychology? And this is not late in life. As Dr. Miles pointed out earlier in this conference to me, 
This comes from the M Notebook. Look at this. He is thinking theologically from an evolutionary psychology perspective. Our descent then is the origin of our evil passions. The devil under the form of baboon is our grandfather. Light through evolution will possibly be thrown on original sin. Maybe we'll have to reconsider and reformulate the reality that we do have this tendency to sin, the Augustinian notion within a modern evolutionary context. Continuing, what about human morality? If you wish, some of the altruistic tendencies we have in evolutionary psychology. This is Charles Darwin from Descent. The social instincts, those altruistic tendencies, which no doubt were acquired by man as by the lower animals for the good of the community, would have served him at a very early period as a rude rule of right and wrong. Continuing, the social instincts, the prime principle of man's moral constitution, with the aid of the active intellectual powers and the effects of habit, there it is, naturally lead to the golden rule. Luke 6.31, as ye would that men should do to you, do ye to them likewise, and this lies at the foundation of morality. And with that being the case, impulses, the lower impulses and the higher social tendencies leads to the notion, according to Darwin, is a conflicted human condition in evolutionary psychology. It is not surprising that there should be a struggle in man between his social instincts, call them the altruistic tendencies, natural moral revelation, with their derived virtues and in conflict with his lower, though momentarily strong, momentary stronger impulses and desires. Now, I think you know, being an evangelical, well-educated evangelical group, where I'm going with this. The conflicted Pauline condition in evolutionary psychology. Now, I'm not offering a concordist hermeneutic here. What I am is I'm listening to Paul and I'm reading Paul phenomenologically. Here he is, Romans 7. I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in, for in my innermost self, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, sarks, the flesh, waging war against the law of my mind. And I love this passage because this is me and this is my experience. What a wretched man I am. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. I do not understand what I do. And I think that if we were a little more charitable to Charles Darwin, and instead of putting together cartoons in the Hornet in 1871, maybe he's got an insight with regards to our condition in that we are both an, have an evolutionary past and at the same time we bear the image of God and we have this tendency and tension between the two. Okay, so let's conclude with an intellectually fulfilled theism. Again, I'm drawing insights. Number one, divine creative action. Firstly, when it comes to evolution, 
What is evolution? It's God's most magnificent laws. Again, do not let Dawkins control evolutionary biology. And to make it clear that he's bringing in a metaphysic and don't call it science. Number two, from the origin of species, what's evolution? It's been impressed on matter by the creator. So what's evolutionary biology? It's God's process to create the world. And, as I said earlier in the presentation, the embryology-evolution analogy, where do we find this? In his two most important books, The Origin of Species and The Descent of Man. And as I came to terms with evolution, and as I helped my students come to terms with it, I find this is one of the, one of the most accessible uh, analogies to help people start rethinking um, what evolution might mean. How about intelligent design? Well, we're seeing it. All, we saw it all through Darwin, the Darwin literature. Um, it's natural revelation in my mind. I believe it's real. And as a as a Christian reading the Darwin literature the first time, I just kept going back. I couldn't believe how it resonated with my 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 strong view of natural revelation. We'll notice that we have Paley's ideas, Paley's intelligent design categories were clearly a stumbling block. And so I'll leave you with this question. Could it be that the modern intelligent design movement or intelligent design theory, which, of course, echoes a lot of Paley, is it possible that this might be producing a stumbling block for many people today? How about theodicy? Well, as I mentioned earlier, I think I see a juxtaposition between the passages that deal with pain that Darwin notes and at the same time those many passages he talks about this wonderful world, the design argument. Or to put it in Latin, Deus absconditus, the God who hides in the darkness of some of those dark recesses of nature from Deus revelatus, the God who reveals, as in Psalm 19. And, of course, the notion that instead of always focusing on the negative of evolutionary biology and of nature, from the man himself, he sees that there's an excess of happiness over misery in nature from the autobiography. And then finally, evolutionary psychology, which I think is the most challenging, but at the same time I find very, very fascinating. Again, I see a second juxtaposition between the issue of original sin in the sense that we have this compulsion, we have this compulsion that, that we all acknowledge, and at the same time juxtaposed with moral natural revelation and altruistic tendencies, and that these could all come through an evolutionary process. Which leads to my final point. We see in this literature a struggle. I personally think a lot of the struggle we have is it's a struggle with our evolutionary past. And when it comes to the word struggle, we're all sons and daughters of the God of Israel. In Israel, means exactly that, El, Elohim, God, and Shara, meaning to struggle. We are children of the God and of the God of Israel, and I think struggle is a part of our, voy of our, our voyage. So, so thanks to Charles Darwin, he's led me to the conclusion that struggle is good. Struggle contributed to our creation through evolution, and struggle contributes to our understanding of the Creator. Thank you very much.